All right, let's uh, pray. Uh, Jim, would you mind opening us in prayer? I know I'm throwing a curveball out there. Sure, yeah. Jim, thank you for this evening. Uh, thank you for uh, Troy and his class. We just pray that uh, give uh, Troy the words and the wisdom to reach your truth, Lord, and help us to understand Alright, well, uh, Pete saw me in the hallway and apologized already that he's told me he's probably going to fall asleep tonight. <laughs> I'm going to say, I might fall asleep tonight. So if I do, just throw your pencil or pen at me or something. and Or you can throw uh, a peanut butter ball at me. <clears throat> and I will gladly eat it and go back to sleep. Uh, this week we're going to discuss Lesson 3, A Spirit-Directed Community. I'm going to try to take a slightly different tact on that, um, as you'll see in a moment when we get to the meat of that lesson. But um, just wanted to see if I could um, begin the class with a discouraging point for myself to see how little you've remembered from the first two classes. So, <laughs> a lot of pressure. Yes. So... If you all fail, I'll just go home, go to sleep, and I'll wake up tomorrow morning okay. Class one, we talked about the church, and we talked about it specifically in relationship to its connection to the Old Testament, specifically the nation of Israel. Um, What was the main covenant that God gave that said that he was going to, through this individual person, give a seed that he's going to bless all the different types of peoples, throughout the world, the Abrahamic covenant. So we see the Abrahamic covenant being fulfilled in the church, right? And if you remember way back to last semester when we talked about the Old Testament and the New Testament, we saw that there's this thing called the seed promise given in Genesis 3.15, and that each of the respective covenants in the Old Testament all just kind of grow and expand and continue to keep that promise afloat. And tonight we're going to see another one of those big key covenants from the Old Testament coming into play in the life of the church, and that's the New Covenant. So we have the seed promise in Genesis 3.15 that God is going to send a serpent crusher, right? And then Abrahamic Covenant, God says that he's going to send that seed through a specific family, and through that specific family, Abraham, growing into the nation of Israel, all different types of people from the, in the world are going to be blessed. <clears throat> Salvation will come through the seed. Then we see the Mosaic Covenant being given to that nation as they're formally uh, instituted as a nation, and we see that Mosaic Covenant given for a host of reasons, but one of the main reasons is to point everybody to the fact that they need this rescuer, they need this coming seed. And then we see the Davidic Covenant. We see how the, the nature of this salvation and the, the type of salvation that's going to come, and it's going to be a kingly salvation. A king is going to come from the Abrahamic line, and he's going to establish a kingdom filled with all of his people, his believing people. And then we see in, in uh, Joel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, we see prophets talking about this thing called the New Covenant. And the New Covenant is God is going to send his spirit, and his spirit is going to open up the floodgates of salvation to all people 
so that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. <clears throat> so what I tried to do, and I gave you more now than I did even then, but what I tried to do is to set the church in the context of biblical history. <clears throat> so we said that the Old Testament is our history. The Old Testament is worth reading because it's our history. We can look back on it and, and find our ancestors there because we are not completely disconnected. We are not Israel. We're not the nation of Israel, but the nation of Israel and us, we're related. So then we got to, and so we got down in that lesson to the definition of the church, when this is definitely not a, a, a all-encompassing definition, but it was a diverse group of people unified into one body by faith in and through Jesus Christ. So, diversity, man, woman, boy, girl, to use biblical language, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, Jew, Gentile, all alike, they're all under one umbrella in this people of God called the church. It's an all-inclusive, universal, I'm not suggesting universalism, that everyone will become a believer, but I'm saying that this seed and this promise and this salvation through the seed has gone out to all people groups. So then last uh, last week we talked about, so what is the church supposed to do? What is the function of a biblically balanced church? And we talked about different ways that people skin that cat. We talk about inward, outward, upward. We talk about relational, evangelistic, and fellowship, or, or, or uh, what was the other one? The, the, the worship aspect. But I tried to, I tr- what was that? Instruction. Instruction. But I tried to take it all and break it down into five things with the acronym of WIFES. W-I-F-E-S. Worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, and service. WIFES. And those, I think that everything that we do as an assembly, as a local assembly, can be covered under those things. So, yes, I didn't say prayer. I didn't say Lord's Supper and baptism. Those are all things that we have to be doing. Um, being generous and giving, but all of those those individual things can can fall under the one of those five umbrellas, and that's really where we focused our attention last week, and we we fairly quickly then evaluated our church and, and to see how we are doing as as a church. This week um, we are going to look at the spirit directed community, and our goal is to discover the church's dependence upon the Holy Spirit. So this is the slight nuance that I want to take. I would like to try to expose and and get us to think about the fact that we are a dependent people and we are dependent upon the Spirit. And the reason I want to kind of uh, focus our attention in this respect is because... I think that of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, particularly in our non-charismatic evangelical church, we don't he's not even on our radar screen. We don't even think about him. And in fact, when we do think about him, we think about him in like a almost like a fearful, like, well, we gotta gotta be careful, like, whoa, you know, like we're always really cautious, and, and rightfully so, but the Holy Spirit is 
every bit as equally God as Christ. And if you recall, I think it was last semester, it might have been two semesters ago, I, I started out a lesson on God the Holy Spirit and said, which would you prefer to have? Jesus beside you or the Spirit inside you? And boy, that got an interesting conversation going. And then I walked through uh, a couple verses in the book of John and, I, and I, I showed you that Jesus himself said, it's better that I go. Why is it better that I go? Because the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, is going to come. So this, this, this Holy Spirit is not just some, you know, country bumpkin, ver- you know, part of the the, the triunity of God. <clears throat> he is a key uh, focus and point, particularly in the community of our local church. And so I would like to talk about, <clears throat> start our conversation just in a foundational sense and, and consider our foundational dependence on the Spirit as seen in the church's beginning and then in the church's uh, imagery or analogy. <clears throat> and you'll get it once I show you the text. So the church's beginning. And I'm not going to ask you to read this whole thing. You're going to have to trust me. But in Acts 2, day of Pentecost, Peter's preaching a sermon. Weird things are happening, right? Do, do you recall? I mean, the Spirit has descended. People are starting to speak in weird languages. And at one point in time, there's such a commotion that they look at Peter and say, that they're, they're intimating like, hey, are these people drunk? And Peter says, time out. These people aren't drunk. And then he says, verse 16 of Acts 2, This, what is happening among you, is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Well, what was spoken by the prophet Joel? And Peter goes on to quote in, in, in a lengthy section of Joel 2, but I just put up the pertinent part of Joel 2. Joel 2, verses 28 and 29. This is a prophecy of Joel of what is going to come. And afterward, I will pour out my Spirit, speaking capital S, the Holy Spirit, on all people. And get all people there, not everyone, literally, but on all types of people. Because look, he then starts talking about different types. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your younger men will see visions. Even on my servants, so the lowly men and women, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. So here Joel is prophesying of a day to come when... The Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all different types of people. <clears throat> this is the promise of the new covenant given to the nation of Israel. And here, Peter says, in response to the, in response to the audience that thinks all these nut jobs are drunk, he says, no, 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 no. What you are seeing with your very own eyes is what was spoken or prophesied about by Joel. Come on in. You're good. You're all right. So this is the church's beginning. And what I want you to notice is the church's beginning. Who is the central figure at the beginning of the church? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. 
is the central figure of the Godhead who is present at the beginning of the church. Where's Christ? He had he had ascended 40 days prior, right? That's the point of the of Pentecost. It's a, it's a feast 40 days after that. So so here he is. He's he's gone. Now the comforter has come. His, his followers were awaiting this special day, not knowing what was coming. And here it is. The Spirit taking center stage, starting the church. And as I think I kind of tipped my hand a little bit uh, last week, I think that one of the most significant reasons for the gift of tongues was to have a a very tangible, visible, even verbal uh, demonstration and proof that, that this seed promise and the salvation that was given and promised through the seed of, of Jesus Christ is now going to all nations, all different types of people. Come on. So that's the church's beginning. Do you see the Spirit is foundationally involved with the beginning of the church? The second is the church's imagery. The church's imagery can be seen um, in, in many texts, but uh, one key text that we'll just read tonight is here in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. You've heard this text, I'm sure, before. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And he's speaking corporately to the church. And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. So, what is a temple? What was a temple in the Old Testament? What? Place of worship. Okay, it was a place of worship. Sacrifice. Okay, a place of sacrifice. It's where God dwelled. What? where God dwelled with and met with the people. It was the location of God's presence, right? And here now, Paul is saying that you, the body, the church, you are God's temple. That is where the Holy Spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. He later goes on in chapter 6 to say that we each individuals, uh, individual people are, are temples. But here he's speaking of the corporate entity of the church. What type of implication do you think that has? That we are, as the church... God's temple. We are his dwelling place here and now. You probably can't be wrong, so just throw something out at me. Help me not fall asleep. What was your question? Let me put it this way. Why does that matter? What's What's such a big deal about you and I being God's temple, God's dwelling place, the residence of the Holy Spirit, here and now. What what importance is there to that? It's here to direct us. You can take a sense of comfort in it. I mean, you, there's a bunch of bunch of reasons why it'd be good. It's and good. that's what I'm trying to get say. So we got two good. Represent Christ in the world. Okay. In some senses, it makes us holy because in the old temple, the place where Christ dwelt was the holy holies, or where the where God dwelt. Yeah. I mean, could you imagine? All right, just think about the way we deal with with church. I remember when I was a kid, 
like being scared to disobey my parents, particularly when I went to church. Now, I was usually probably a pretty conscientious kid. My dad can probably argue against that, but I wasn't as scared at home to disobey or to smart off, but at church... Imagine the Old Testament. I mean, so you're at a temple where animals are literally being slaughtered by priests and then being burned, and you're seeing their carcasses and the stink and, and the whole nine yards going. I mean, I think that would I think that would probably give you a little pause before you smart off to your parents. But yet, here we have this imagery drawn that you and I are the temple of God. And I don't think about it that way. <laughs> I don't think of before I lash out at my, my kids or I get angry at work or I'm playing golf and I get mad and swear words are going off inside of my head, hopefully not coming out of my mouth. And I'm not thinking about, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm God's temple. Like, I am God, the holy Spirit of God is dwelling in me. I mean, there's far-reaching implications of just that simple truth. If you just, it would do your heart well if you just sat down for the rest of the week and thought about that. Just meditate on that for one week and see what that does for your spiritual life. Because it'll change it. So, the foundational side The church is beginning, and then the church's imagery, this idea of the temple, the residence of the Holy Spirit. But I'd like to also look at our our corporate dependence upon the Spirit. And I'd like to look at these, just I'm going to tick off these with a text each. There's a gazillion texts for each. I just picked one because we'd be here forever if I was reading all of them. But I'd just like to go through those five broad categories of the functions of the church. And I'm just going to give you a, a text up here to kind of tag along with that to think through. <clears throat> so the first one, and you don't have to panic. I'm going to have all of them written up here again. But the first one is worship. You're probably familiar with uh, John 4, where Jesus meets a Samaritan woman. And he says, woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, speaking of Jews, worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit, note the emphasis, capital S, and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. So our worship is invaded by the Holy Spirit. So our worship is fueled by the Holy Spirit. However you want to describe it, one of the five key functions of the church is it is dependent to do it right on the Holy Spirit. What version is that? NIV, I think. So some versions just say in spirit. Yeah, in spirit, yeah. And it doesn't have the other. Correct. The key to that, though, is the capital S. Yeah, yeah but that's even debate, debate, blah, blah, blah. 
debatable. Um, <clears throat> but I chose the version of our church to stick with, not just because it made my point, but... So then instruction. Remember, whites, worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, service. Instruction, then, just consider this text that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2. What have we, re- or what we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. So in other words, for someone to be able to understand the truth of God's word, yes, I could understand the facts, the data of it as an unbeliever, but to actually understand the implications and the weight and the significance of that, the spirit is required for that instruction to take root in someone's heart. So then, the person without the Spirit, Paul goes on, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit, however, makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We, those who are of the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. So when the, when the word is preached, those who are spiritual, they have the spirit, they have the ability to grasp the significance of the word. Without the spirit, we don't get it. So we are a spirit-dependent people. In worship, instruction, then in fellowship. I could have picked a million texts for this one. I chose this one because I like Galatians a lot. Um, and fellowship and service kind of get all money together a little bit. So you have to pardon that. Hopefully it doesn't confuse you. But Galatians 5, 13 and 14. So this is chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit passage, right? So just to set the context. We're talking about the Spirit in the life of the believer and the outworking of that spiritual fruit in the life of the believer and Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And then he says, For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one commandment love your neighbor as yourself. Well, what's the heart of fellowship? I mean, is that not serving and loving one another? I mean, that's the heart of true biblical fellowship, is loving one another. That is wrought by the Spirit of God. And you could, we could look at all sorts of texts that would confirm that. Just look a little bit later in, in Galatians chapter 5 where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, consider other texts like Colossians or Ephesians or uh, a whole slew of texts in 1 John or 2 Peter. And we can, we can see in these chains of virtues love being a preeminent feature. So we have fellowship and then evangelism. <clears throat> Second Timothy 1, 7-11. So this is uh, a really, I really enjoy this. I really enjoy the thought and imagery of this text. For the spirit God gives us does not make us timid or fearful. But that spirit gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Well, what, what for? To just gives me this 
you know, victorious, confident spirit to go and cut my grass when it's raining. Um, that I'm not going to get struck by lightning. Okay, well, maybe, but that just sounds stupid. It's real, this, the, the context here is the te- being a testimony for Christ. So for the Spirit of God, is not does not make us timid or fearful or bashful, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. And I wanted to read that whole thing because it's just awesome. But I also wanted to get down to verse 11 where Paul is saying, Hey, see, this spirit is infusing me not with fear, but with power and love and self-discipline so that I can fulfill my mission of being a teacher and a herald and an ambassador and an apostle. Has he not called us to do the same thing? Yes, we're not called to be an apostle, but he has called us to be an ambassador. And we, likewise, must be fueled and dependent upon the Spirit. Then we'll finish up with the five-pronged focus on service. And boy, again, go to a bunch of texts, but 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit, capital S, distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them, and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So the Holy Spirit is giving out gifts for the common good. For the service and meeting of the needs and the in the work of service of the church to accomplish God's good purposes. So these gifts are given by the Spirit. So we again are dependent on the Spirit. And then look at verse 11. All these are the work of one in the same Spirit. And he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So the gift that you have and the gift that I have, they are sovereignly determined and given by the Spirit of God to you and to me to be used for the common good of this assembly. Without that Spirit giving you that gift, you got nothing. Other than whatever skills you just innately have, which happen to also come from Him in the first place. So here in just the main five very broad categories of function of the church, worship, instruction, fellowship, evangelism, and service, we see that we corporately, as a local assembly, are dependent on the Holy Spirit. And again, I think we're going to finish early unless you guys start asking crazy questions, which I will not answer tonight when we get to this section. So... I'd like to end is focusing on our individual dependence on the Spirit. And I'm not going to go into uh, all the talk on sanctification because I've beaten that horse to death in past semesters. But I'd just like to consider this one verse in the context of Galatians. You're just going to have to let me talk a lot about this. 
And this is where you're going to probably see a little bit of my passion about this idea of not neglecting the Spirit of God in the local church now um, come out, and hopefully I won't scare you. <laughs> Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 says this, For if we live by the Spirit, so in other words, what he's saying there is if we have life by the Spirit, we have been regenerated, we are God's people. So if we live by the Spirit, let us, underline, keep in step with the Spirit. In that very near context, he says, walk in the Spirit, live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, walk in the Spirit. Then again in chapter 6, he, he talks about this four or five different times, this idea of living by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, following the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. But what on earth is that? Well, just consider with me for a moment. Who are these Galatian believers that Paul was writing to? Mixed bag of Jew and Gentile for certain, right? So if you think about the book of Galatians, I mean, they were struggling with a lot of issues with, okay, what do we do with this whole law thing? That's why they got chapter 3 written in there. And he's got the illustration of Peter and his problems with... Uh, what do we do? Do I hang out with the, the Jews or the Gentiles? And I'm not really sure. And then got this whole issue of circumcision. So there was a lot of tension in the Galatian church. The mixed baggage, you and Gentile. Did they have all of Scripture at this stage in the game? When Paul's writing, this is not a trick question, Paul is writing Galatians. Did they have that yet? No. No. They didn't have the whole Bible, right? So how much more dependent were they on the Spirit of the living God dwelling them to live wisely in a wicked world? They didn't have all of it. They had the Old Testament. Obviously, they had this letter at the time of writing. But they didn't have everything gathered. And so... Here you are, a believer in Galatia. You don't have the full counsel of God's word that we have the luxury to have today. How are they supposed to walk in obedience to Christ? They keep in step with the Spirit. What does that look like? Well, the Obviously, they have to be sensitive to the prompting and the leading of the Spirit, right? They've got to be thinking through, wow, I mean, just being in tune, if I could put it that way, being in tune with the Spirit of God, that seems like it would be, kind of makes sense. Let me put, because I'm probably starting to scare you, let me scare you a little bit more, and then we can have maybe a discussion. The guy who wrote one of the chapters in your book wrote this. I, you can see the brackets. I Just to make it full a little bit better, I put some extra stuff in there, but one word. But he writes, The Spirit of God is bound to the Word of God, as the Word is inspired by the Spirit, and God is not a God of confusion. However, the Spirit is not confined to the Word. He speaks to us in a great variety of ways apart from the Scriptures, but these will not not be, and I would say never, 
at variance with the scriptures, which are for us the supreme authority of God's self-revelation. Now that might scare some of you, and that's okay, and I'm glad you're scared. But we have cooties, or we we think that, that, that the Spirit has cooties. We treat them like a junior high girl, or a junior high boy, depending on what gender you are. And we're scared of them. And because of the charismatic abuses in our in our culture, kind of rightly so. Like, oh, well, speaking in tongues and, well, this guy had a dream or whatever. Like, who cares about all that stuff for just a second? Forget about that. What I'm trying to get, the, the point I'm trying to stress is this, that the Spirit will, He authored the Word. So He can never, in His very nature and character, can never operate contrary or lead you or guide you in a way contrary to the Word of God. But I think that He can. He is not so confined to the pages of the Word that He cannot lead you in a specific direction that is not explicitly stated in letters in, in the pages of Scripture. Let me give you an example. In 2000, um, 2011, I think it was. Uh, yeah, two, October-ish 2011, Mallory, we didn't have Hadley yet, Mallory, Caden, and I went to Florida with my mom and dad, and I think, I think Terrence, yeah, Terrence there. First panic attack I ever had on an airplane. So it was just a great time. So we're flying home. I have a panic attack. Caden, the night before, we went to this place called Sam Seltzer's. It's like amazing prime rib place. That night it wasn't very good. But so Caden gets in. We get home. Caden didn't eat. And all of a sudden he just like barfed all over the bed. What in the world? I mean, the kid was a pretty healthy kid. Next morning, when we're getting ready to leave, we see like all these sores all over. And we get home, they're worse, starts running a fever. We take, we end up taking him to the hospital on Sunday. Apparently he has some rare and very, I wouldn't call it life-threatening, but it's like on the scale, it's like potentially life-threatening depending on the range, a reaction to penicillin because he had an ear infection before we went. And so apparently what was happening is the penicillin was like coming out of his body because he was reacting negatively to it. Um, so we're obviously, as fairly new parents, freaked out, right? Take him to the hospital. They tell us, oh, yeah, he just has hives. Wrong. Um, don't do anything. So we go to the pediatrician, say, hey, if it moves closer to his face, take him to children's, we go to children's. So, two weeks later, this lady named Roxanne Brown, who I've grown up going to church with, she's my parents' age, she walks up to us at church, and we don't really ever interact with this lady. It's like, hey, I was on vacation in Mexico a couple weeks ago, and I couldn't sleep, I don't know why, and, and God just laid you and your wife and your son on my heart, and I, I was just praying generally. I didn't know what was wrong, but I, I was praying specifically for you. I hope everything was all right. Yeah. And I just look at her and I'm like, are you serious? And then I explain the situation to her. Now, some people would sit there and say, 
I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone would say, well, that's just half the standards. But I don't believe that that's just a fluke. I don't believe that, you know, it just so happened. It just, it, I don't believe that it just so happened that Roxanne Brown happened to be being obedient to God when she couldn't sleep and was led by the Spirit to obey His Word by just praying. As some people would would say, well, I mean, she was obeying the Word and the Spirit only works and can, you know, it exactly according to the Word. I'm like, well, yeah, of course He works according to the Word. He wrote it. But I believe that the Spirit of God laid on her heart at that exact time my family who was in need and she was led to pray I don't see any other explanation around that other than that that is what I'm trying to get at when I when I bring to you your attention a quote like this folks we are dependent on the spirit of God but let me give you this caution because I think it's it's, it's clear throughout scripture and and I think that it's worthy, especially when I'm saying something that could be interpreted. I don't know how you might interpret it. Let me give you this caution. First Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes, verse 19, he says, Do not quench the spirit. And then he says, Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, so bear hug the good, and, and abstain or reject every kind of evil. So, so folks, if if God, in that particular Roxanne Brown illustration, lays on your heart, you believe that, that the Spirit of God is directing you or guiding you to do something, well, obviously that one's a no-brainer, right? Right? Yes. Praying for someone? Okay. But that might not be, there might not be, you might have a sense that God is directing you in a certain direction or to take a certain job or to do a certain thing. Okay? You've got to, you've got to be discerning. That this is not a willy-nilly because people use that all the time. Well, you know, God, God told me to do this. What? God didn't tell you to do that. Look at what scripture says. God wouldn't tell you to jump off that building. God wouldn't tell you to take that job when your family is, is stuck in Michigan. God wouldn't tell you to take that job down in, 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 in Tallahassee, Florida and leave your family. God wouldn't tell you to go move to California and take a million-dollar-a-year job when you don't have the ability to care for your family and to ever be present to take that job where all you do is travel and and you never can go to church. So there has to be discernment. God's not going to lead you in those in directions that are contrary to His Word, and and we have to continually be discerning, testing what we're doing, what we're thinking, hold fast to the good, and abstain from evil. Folks, we are dependent corporately, individually, and as the church, even in its very beginnings and its imagery, we are dependent on the Holy Spirit of God. Let's not treat Him like He has cooties. But let's let's 
embrace him. Let it, let's enjoy him. Let us be sensitive to his guiding and leading in our lives. And let us keep in step with him as Paul um, encourages us a lot to do. I'm done. 20 minutes ahead of time.